French term that's used in viticultural in viticulture, which is um, when you taste a wine, then you can taste the essence of the place. So you can taste what the sun did, what the earth did, what the water did, what the little flitter, flitter of the butterfly did on the grape. That's the terroir, it's the spirit of the wine, or the spirit of the earth in the wine. That's Gabrielle Bates, this week's guest on What I Don't Talk About at Barbecues. Uncertainty. I'm never certain. There's always another perspective to consider, another option to weigh up. There is no black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. Life is lived in the third way, while I struggle to squeeze round pegs into square holes. I'm seeking security and safety in certainty, solid ground to stand on, and all the time drifting in an in-between state where there is no beginning and no ending, no winning and no losing, only the labels I put on things and the emotions I feel and how they inform me about the experiences I have. This is where my life is lived. This is where I rise and fall, stumble and pick myself up again. This is where I laugh till I cry and I cry till I laugh and I try to work out why. May I never be certain. May I always be searching and learning and discovering. Hey, welcome back. It's Ken. Thanks for joining me on this week's What I Don't Talk About at Barbecues. I've got an awesome chat coming up with visual artist Gabrielle Bates in just a moment. If you're new to the podcast, what's it all about? What is this whole thing about what I don't talk about at barbecues? I guess what I'm really interested in is sitting down with people whose planets orbit my own, and I'm really interested to find out what moves people, what events in their lives have led them to be where they are today, and what are the stories they're telling themselves that have shaped who, who they are, and how they see their place in their world. That's what the chat's about. That's how we get into it. I'm really glad you've joined me this week because this is a really good one. I've just, I felt like the whole time I was running to catch up with Gabrielle, trying to understand her world, her work, where she comes from, and the enormous passion she gives to her artistry. The best way I can describe it is in a series of keywords that we really delve into today. Enchantment, disenchantment, aspiration, connection, home, responsibility, accountability, and how listening is one of the only true ways of improving upon the legacy of our colonial past. It's a really big chat. I'm so glad I had it and, you know, it's still resonating with me in so many new ways. So sit back, relax, enjoy. I'm here in Stanmore with Gabrielle Bates. Gabrielle, how are you today? Good, thank you. Thank you for being here on my podcast. Pleasure. It's great, to, it's great to be here. It's great to see you again. It's been a little while. It has. Before we get any, before we get any further into the podcast, I want to start with asking you to introduce yourself like you're singing in the shower. And the reason I do that is because I think in the shower, behind the closed doors, under the steaming hot water, in the great acoustics of bathrooms, we sing our best selves. 
So will you introduce yourself like you are singing in the shower? Uh, well, I am a visual artist and a writer. I have been doing that for nearly 25 years and I am interested in questions of place, politics and esoteric practice. Place, politics and esoteric practice. Mm -hmm. So how does that, what does that look like? What do you, how does, how do you live that? It manifests in many, many yeah. different ways. So uh, as a, an artist, mm -hmm. uh, it manifests in my studio and through a lot of uh, various uh, inquiries into different types of ritual that we observe. It involves a lot of engagement with the place that I live and the places that I visit. Mm -hmm. The political side is more geared towards the way in which um, gentrification and um, dubious development affect those places. Hmm. Dubious development. Mm -hmm. That sounds controversial. Yeah. It sounds like there's a whole river of, uh, there's a whole story running underneath that statement. What mm -hmm. does dubious development mean to you? To contextualise it, mm -hmm. I also work as a real estate writer. Oh. So when I'm not making art in my studio, I am out um, visiting properties, looking at their best features and uh, finding ways to uh, write about them that will help the property sell. Now, in that time I've spent, I've written for developers and I've spent a lot of time going into a lot of new developments and uh, inspecting them and I can see firsthand that they're not being done well, mm -hmm. that they're not being done with integrity, that a lot of corners are being cut and also there's no great sense of community consultation occurring. Now that's, uh, you know, it's, it's such a broad thing but um, I think that in any place where people have lived for a period of time and that includes the traditional owners of this country, mm -hmm. um, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a pattern in the city of Sydney where there's just been a constant shift and change of, um, of, of suburbs. The city has grown up and out and even down into the ground. Uh, and it's just a constant form of colonisation that uh, was started off by a settler forebears when they first came in 1788. And it really hasn't stopped. It's just been... A rollout of cement and every time a place becomes established and um, a bit of character starts to kick in then the developers move into town things change very quickly they often buy out the community they will find all kinds of dubious ways in which to ingratiate themselves and um, next thing you know people are displaced they're moved on everything changes and the value of the city itself, the thing that actually gave it the life or the character, shifts and not necessarily for the better. Mm. And it's all in the aid of greed. And it always has been. That's sort of the bottom line of any kind of colonial project. It's about greed and acquisition. That You mentioned character. And it's, it's one, when a community is being settled for a certain amount of time, this character naturally seems to evolve and, and, and develop. And that's usually then what attracts people in. We see it so much, you know, Marrickville over the past few years, the cafe culture that's popped up there, 
Um, and that's usually then we see development follow. Hmm. You know, we've seen it in Leichhardt, we've seen it in Woolloomooloo, mm-hmm. um, places where 20, 25 years ago you couldn't give property away. Today, you've no hope. I guess what I'm interested in, in terms of your what, what draws you to it, is what, what's possible. So, so we know development, we, we know that that's going to become a beacon. This character, the popularity, demand, it's, it's, it's kind of basic economics 101, isn't it? Uh, what can we do yes. or, or, or can we change, can we slow, can we retain, how do we retain community? Yeah, okay. It's a really, really great question and it has many, many um, different aspects. The assumption that character um, attracts a certain group of people on the surface is correct. But um, what a lot of people don't realise about the gentrification process is that machinations are in place well before a place becomes attractive to hipsters or young families or developers that are are very um, pernicious. And it can be just something as simple as a change in zoning. So to answer your question, what's possible, it's about the community being on really uh, focused on the subtle changes that are happening within the political landscape of their, where they live. Um, now, there are people, there are groups in councils who are very aware of, um, of those machinations and they will do everything they can to stop. But money often speaks louder than community voice, as we've seen over the last 40, 50 years in particular. So, uh, and that you know, corruption unfolds. That's the, that's the answer. Mm. It's a just stay, community staying on top and not becoming apathetic, I think. I hear a lot of apathy. Oh, well, it's already happening. What can we do? We throw our hands in the air. People say that a lot about the West Connex motorway to me. Oh, well, you know, they've already started digging. That's not the point, you know. I mean, yes, okay, probably not enough people were on board to stop that um, monster. But I still think that if you take the apathetic position, then this is just going to continue to occur. So a shift in in the colonial thinking of entitlement to to place is, is absolutely vital. Is that sense of entitlement? Is it still? Does it still linger? So absolutely, it's, it, it's a, it's, 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 yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness, every day. Where does it come from? In your opinion. Oh my goodness, uh, hard to give you um, a, 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 you know, a, a short one-liner about the, um, the, the mission of empire and uh, the colonial project. So while but the notion of empire mm-hmm. may be gone, mm. there's, there's not going to be a. A, 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 an empire with a with a unified flag or country name, corporatization is another is another. I guess it's probably modern empire, but yet the the sentiment, sentiment still of, still yeah, lingers. Pure abject ownership. Mm. My place, my house, my yard, my street. To what end? Can you broaden that question I'm, a little? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm curious. Greed for its own sake, mm-hmm. possession, mm-hmm. materialism for its own mm-hmm. sake, and to me, that's what it seems. It seems mm-hmm. yeah. there is never enough. 
Yeah, well, that's because yes. if, if I have this and there's something available over there, I want to get it before someone else gets it because it may be it may add to mine. Yes, and that's I think one of the um, the biggest problems amongst many is um, aspiration. Mm. Uh, we talk about aspiration as though it's something to be valued, and um, I think that aspiration and um, and convenience are two of the you know the most pernicious values that we have you've done a lot of work in 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 the past few years around the west connects project and 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 the impact it's having on these inner inner sydney suburbs two words which have come up in your writing which really resonated with me were enchantment and disenchantment Mm. you just kind of touched on that notion of aspiration and i immediately thought of disenchantment because Aspiration, you hear that word and you think, I think positive. I, th- I feel good about that word. Mm. But then I think of materialism. Then I think I've got to buy something. Then I think I'm going to need a loan. Then I think I'm tied down and I feel very quickly linked to disenchantment. How have you seen that take a... Uh, how have you seen that in reality or in, in, in these suburbs around here? Well, I think you've summed it up brilliantly. In terms of um, disenchantment, the amount of stuff I see thrown out where people just acquire and acquire in order to uh, ingratiate their lives, to, uh, to feel like they are, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, uh, prosperous, mm. look good, they're ahead of their game, they're on top of everything, everything is new and fresh, nothing is mended, nothing is cared for. Things break down, things are bought cheaply because we all want to look like the rich guy. And the next thing you know, it's the things that we have in our lives are broken, they're misused, they're out on the street. And I spend a lot of time walking around picking them up. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> and that's my enchantment. <laughs> I, I want to I talk to you about your master's, sure. which you did in, in uh, conjunction with UNSW. Can you give me a brief synopsis of the work you did with local community groups and how it began with those notions of enchantment and disenchantment and kind of how it started to evolve? Because a lot, a lot of the work which you produced became a bit of a lost and found. Very it's, much it, so. It was, it was fat, lost and found objects mm. on your walks and, and walking mm-hmm. and street maps mm. and how that evolved became, a, a, you know, really core to how you've been spending your time the past few years? Mm. Well, the project itself was an investigation into how objects and rituals associated with witchcraft could be used to challenge notions of gentrification and dubious urban development. What brought you there? What brought me there? Oh, that might be my origin story. Wow. Well, I guess one thing I do like to, and, and kind of the conceit of the podcast, is I like to talk to people about stories that are important to them that have changed, affected the direction their life has gone, but yet they don't often share it or there's never a, a nice point in conversation at a social gathering where they can just say, hey, let me tell you about this time mm. when my life changed no, this is for it. the better. So <laughs> I figure maybe we've reached that segue and we've touched on it. So can you tell me a story that you're not sharing at barbecues? For sure. Always been quite a magical person. I've been really interested in the way that uh, magic operates in the world. But I hadn't really investigated it deeply. 
just had always had a sense that I had something to offer in that way. In uh, the late, late last decade, I had been doing some fun practical magic at home and lo and behold, things started to work. Can you tell me... Uh, you know, magic. Yeah, love, because love spells, uh, um, spells for just, just uh, honestly, spells for personal gain. I won't lie, you know, it's all you know, magic 101, you know, stuff and pretty embarrassing, <laughs> but it really does work because setting intention is so important. <laughs> and when you do set an intention, very quickly things can start to happen, and that's what that was about yeah. just simple, clear focus. So, I was training myself in focus shortly afterwards I was able to manifest a residency in Southeast Asia which was quite a prestigious residency it was at all expenses paid for one year full accommodation paid uh, experience in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur to produce a body of work for some uh, wonderful th philanthropists uh, with a show, an exhibition at the end. I got to travel around Malaysia, I got to meet extraordinary people, and I also got to spend some time with a wonderful dancer and choreographer named Donna Miranda, who was also a guest artist there. She was from Manila. She invited me to Manila, hard to say. She invited me to Manila and I went there, where I met her partner, an extraordinary contemporary artist named Noboto Roldan. Now, Noboto, or Peewee, as we like to call him, uh, had spent time in the priesthood, but he was also interested in witchcraft. And he, he and his, when her then partner Donna, his then partner Donna, uh, were social activists, very strong activists. Um, really sort of you know airing towards socialism in a big way they ran uh, an interesting art space great art space that was uh, quite a center for uh, young artists and just spending time with these people sitting in the gallery eating food with them getting to know their work I was starting to develop not only an, inter an interest in witchcraft and magic that I didn't really you know that I, mm. I wanted to know more about I was also developing social conscience did you see that did you see it in their work was their work infused with this sense of activism activism because sometimes in the art world I guess it's a fine balance with having a political view or having a stand on an issue it can come across very blunt in art and sometimes if it's too blunt, it might miss the mark because mm. it's too obvious. And sometimes art works better sometimes when it's a softer, I don't know, softer is not the right word, but when it well, takes a, a second look. Peewee Pee has um, an amazing sense of poetics and an understanding of material as well as, which underpin, it, it underpins the work that he produces. So... The caliber, the standard of his work is extremely, is so high, he's been collected by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So, you know, we, we're talking serious business. Uh, Donna's work as well has um, evolved and she spent a lot of time in residencies all the way around Southeast Asia. So we're not talking about 
pithy, one-liner, you know, propagandist work. We walk, we're talking about artworks that manifest with incredible, I use that word again, integrity and uh, nuance and intelligence. How has that influenced your own work and the direction you've taken mm. with your own practice? Well, it made me take a really good hard look at myself. I mean, um, these guys are living and working in a developing nation, which, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of fodder there too for resistance and for subversive uh, expression. For me, I think I was... I came back to my nice, happy, white person Sydney where nobody was remotely interested in my travels or experiences in Asia and had to kind of sort through that. So that's why I never talked about it at barbecues, mm. this profound experience that I had because um, nobody asked. Nobody was even faintly interested. Just Apart from monkeys, they were very interested whether there were any monkeys where I lived, which there were. But um, and that's about as far as it went. So it was disappointing. What, what do you and put that down to? Is there any is there any reason or reasons you think? Because on the surface of it, gaining a residency is quite an achievement and something to be very proud of. Spending time in a in another culture for more than a, a, approximately a year. It was a year. A yeah. year. That's a long time to be out. You would think. You would almost, it'd be almost one of those occasions where you'd have to have a t-shirt printed up with your story on it to stop asking or stop telling the same story over and over again. And I yet think if your, I, your experience was very different. Well, here's my, my answer to that. If I had have gone to London or New York, I think the questions would have been endless because people are comfortable with looking. And this is another part of this white, this colonial mm. mentality. We're still looking to those places and considering them to be the world. Mm. We're not interested that interested in Southeast Asia still uh, in general I'm speaking very generally mm. but in the milieu that I spend time with generally not it makes me think of that word aspiration that, that we touched on earlier yeah. that that is not part of our aspirational experience of course not. London New York of course mm. it's again I, I feel like we're coming back to we're living we're living a path forged long ahead of us or long before us yeah um and repeating the patterns yeah which and, and a lot of your work is around that sense of ritual and yeah. and, and establishing sense of place and and uh, the connection and understanding of place mm. but also um the pathologies of repetition and pattern work as well is very much uh one of the drivers behind my work i don't talk about it much i don't write about it much but i have been dealing with the question of patterns since for, yeah for 20 years now easily it's been coming out of my work in what ways or, or what draws you to a pattern how do you firstly how do you come to notice it have you got any examples where you've i, I imagine you stumble across them more than you consciously find them would that be right i uh, i think it just depends on how how present you are to who you are mm. and to the things around you I notice them everywhere because my attention is attuned to that. I see patterns in people's behaviour, positive and destructive constantly. I see patterns in architecture and place and roads. 
I see patterns in the landscape, in mountains and rivers. I see patterns in our body. So um, I think, I don't know if that really answers your question, but... Um, but it's now innate to you. It is innate. That sense of, of, that's, you look at the world and you are looking for how, how is it, how the, the patterns explain what's... They do. Well, they, what patterns tend to do, and I'm going to be, um, go out on a limb here and say they show us our past, but they also show us our future. If you understand patterns, you know exactly what will happen next. So is it to be, uh, without trying to be pithy, but it's probably going to sound pithy, that if, by not understanding our history, we're bound to repeat it? Yeah, it's it. It there sounds... Yeah, just look at the patterns, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. You know, there they are. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's something, and it's, it's something that, that really... I play guitar, not very well, but I play guitar. And for me, learning a song and learning any piece of music is a problem-solving exercise. Because to me, a guitar, musical notes are a series of patterns. And once you understand the patterns, every problem is potentially solvable if you've got the right skills. I don't always have the right skills mm. to solve every musical problem, but thinking in that way, I did a I did a 100K, 100-kilometer charity walk last August. Mm from Brooklyn to Balgala Heights. And a lot of that is through bushland through Sydney. And firstly, it's amazing that in this day and age, you can still walk a hundred kilometers from the bottom of the central coast to Sydney Harbor, mostly through bush. But walking these paths, walking these bush trails, it was that notion that these are paths long formed, oh, forged a yeah. long time ago. And all we're doing is treading them, but we are continually treading the same paths, paths that have been forged before us. How, I, I didn't necessarily feel a sense of gratitude, although I felt grateful that I knew, you know, at night walking through Bob and Head in the pitch black that there was a, a clear path ahead. It, it did, but it just made me think that there is a life in this country that goes far beyond our own recent cultural memory. Oh my God, without a doubt. And I think that um, it's kind of awkward for two people to sit and talk, uh, two white people to sit and talk mm. about it, but um, it's absolutely essential that we uh, acknowledge the fact that there's 60, 70,000 years of um, indigenous pattern making and uh, connection to place that is so utterly different to the way that we perceive and engage with place. And we have so much to learn and we ignore so much to our detriment bringing it back to the local community and you've been very heavily involved in a lot of the things that have happened around the west connects and how community groups have have activized themselves and, and been really involved how has your art found a voice or found a, a shape and form through through your work and connection to these groups one of the things that I really wanted to do was to use, um, make work that was less about the, less, less about the material or the, the, less about the gallery space in general. I wanted to get out of the gallery space. I did not like the limitations of the white cube. As soon as you put something into a white cube, you tend to material you tend to put a price tag on something you can't help it it's a boutique space it um it's a space it's a commercial space so uh, i naturally just gravitated away from that 
I wanted to work with community because the grassroots at this stage of powerlessness that I think most people are, are experiencing, uh, community is the most subversive way of engaging and activating and expressing voice. So um, one of the things that I did was I got a bunch of my witchy friends together, firstly, and we went down to a little park called Simpson Park in St. Peter's, which was just about to be um, affected by the West Connex motorway. They were putting in a dive site, which is one of those tunnels that will be going into the ground and taking great big trucks elsewhere. A horrible, horrible thing. And this beautiful park with 12 magnificent uh, figs was under threat. The community had worked very, very hard to defend that park in the past, but now I, it, the time was imminent that things were going to get very serious. They have destroyed two of those trees, by the way, since, that, since we did our activation. But we got together and we thought about some different ways that we could protect. So guardianship was really vital to us to, to, to guard these trees in some way. And we didn't want to do the usual thing of chaining ourselves to the trees. So through my experiences in Southeast Asia, I became really enamored with the idea of tree shrines. And we began to create different things out of recycled materials, especially a lot of flags and bunting to adorn the trees. And we adorned all 12 of them with very, very bright colors and materials. We used the motif of an eye on a lot of the flags as well, which was um, very much a way of the, the activating the tree as a living entity that was looking back and bearing witness to what was going on around it. So in, in animating in some way or giving um, a, a sense of life to the tree, uh, we were able to um, really e express our resistance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our resistance and, uh, and our care and our love for that place. It was wonderful. And from that, we started to do it elsewhere, mm -hmm. wherever we could, wherever there was a, you know, a west, trees coming down with West Connects, there were trees coming down, down uh, thanks to the light rail. We were also demonstrating close in Camperdown Park, which was close to a new dive site there, and have been invited to other places where the, the environment has been under threat. You talk about... In your writing around this, you talk about witchcraft kind of introduces ritual or evokes ritual that helps end humans' alienation to nature. Mm -hmm. Is that, have I got mm. that? Yeah, yeah. We, we do live in a time where we think objects are dead and we think things are dead or not sentient. And are we naturally at odds with nature? Is it in our It depends nature? on who you're talking about. Yeah. I, I mean, you and me, we live in a society that I'd say, yeah. Mm. I mean, look at the way we treat it. Absolutely. Look at the way we throw things away. Look at the way we uh, disengage from our gardens or we, um, we, we fear it. Um, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful living, interconnected system. And as soon as you really understand everything around you, including the floor under our feet, the walls of the room that we're in, as something that is alive and taking care of you, the whole deal changes. 
possibility for neglect shifts to a possibility of care. Within the concept of witchcraft, the the second you say the word witch, witchcraft, it evokes certain potentially stereotypical images. Yeah. It seems, <laughs> uh, for me, myself, as, as, as I was reading through your writing on this, it's a very, very female-based images. A witch is, I can't get the idea of a witch not being, there's no male witch in my head. I don't have an image for that. Um, but coming from Ireland, where Ireland has a, an ancient pagan history, there's high priestesses, there's queens, it come, you know, there's, there's a rich history of, you know, strong females, of, of strong feminine culture that I think globally we've lost. Yeah, it's time for that to rise again. Are, are, are you seeing that, are you seeing that through the activism and through how people are finding ways to express and manifest these different ways of, 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 of art and expression? Absolutely. People are desperate to um, feel some sort of right to existence and power in their lives again. And this, uh, this really, really helps. It does, make a, it does make a difference to how you feel, taking a little bit of power back through activism, through re-engaging with place, through shifting perspective, by becoming re-enchanted by the world. Mm rather than disenchanted by it. Cynicism slips away and absolute joy and, and care and guardianship just evolves quite naturally. It's been amazing to watch the evolution and, and kind of growth of your own art through this, uh, through these past few years. It's a real, I guess a real kind of rediscover, at least for myself in learning about it, a real rediscovery of wonder because you look at these streets in these inner sub in these inner Sydney suburbs, and they're very narrow. They're very built up. Uh, most of them are heavily car lined these days. There's planes flying over. There's trains zipping by. It's they 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 don't feel like spaces where you can stop. Mm. And there's so many nooks and crannies. There is so much to look at. I feel we've lost some of that. But I guess what I've started to do through looking at your art, and especially when I go back to the very first one you did was. Uh, the street spirit map and that was a very literal interpretation of your walk through Stanmore, Camperdown, Newtown, that type of area and then it evolves to be a very kind of abstract piece and then it, you, you know the further iteration of that is when you link that to talismanic art and expression. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's evolved for you and what that means mm -hmm. to you in terms of you know, obviously, you know, trying to document through your art, your daily experience, but then connecting it to the bigger experience that you've had in, in places like Simpson Park. Okay. Ooh, another big, big question. Um, so I work with a process of conceptual blending, which is um, quite a natural way of um, taking from a lot of different uh, diverse ideas and working them together so that they start to speak or sing to one another. So as you said, I started uh, wandering through the, uh, through the streets of um, threatened neighbourhoods and learning about their stories. So um, in, in learning those stories and becoming so delighted with this deeper relationship that I was developing with this place that I inhabit and walk, uh, I uh, 
I felt that I wanted to express that in some way and I wanted to do it in a map. So I started to map out in very, very large scale form on a wall all the little pieces and bits and pieces that I would pick up and then all the little bit, bit, bits and pieces I picked up that I thought might symbolise something of one of the stories I would then weave into the map as well. There were sticks, there was horse hair, I won't take you through all the stories that I learnt but they were quite extraordinary and weaving those things in suddenly I realised that what I had made was something that was alive and that's when I had that sort of you know million dollar moment that just you just go and everyone who came to see it just went, ah, it's alive. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, I think I might be onto something. I want to keep on making maps. So I did. I, I made um, maps out of smoke drawings and scrying, which is a, um, an esoteric technique of um, reading uh, images and ideas out of smoke. But they, I became very, uh, dis I, I didn't want to use traditional map formats Traditional maps, you know, they're about ownership, they're about boundaries, they're about the, you know, colonial project, you know, they're a, a highly patriarchal established form. Well, and a map is the ultimate uh, pattern. Exactly. The ultimate yeah. ritual. It tells mm. us how we are going to get mm. from here to here. Yeah. It is that. That's right. That very basic it's fundamental so didactic form. And, and, you know, they've always been made out of, you know, sort of quantification and so I wanted to move away from that. So the, the things I started to, I started to make these much more rounded, soft amorphous forms that evolved. And I realized that they had, as I added more unusual materials to them, like uh, bits of nails, bits of hair, bits of twine, bones, a lot of bones, um, they, they became talismanic. They became, they started to uh, vibrate with an energy that had the power to remind you in some way of what was at value and that's called mnemonics mnemonic potential and that's how fetish objects actually work they work as mnemonics for communities and for tribes and groups they embody a spirit the spirit of place the genius loci whatever that might be and they remind us of what's important and what needs to be taken care of. So I made, I don't know, 13 or 14 of these very powerful objects, which quickly found homes, people understood. And I also started making little house amulets as well, for especially for the homes that were going to be threatened by the West Connects. And I did workshops with the community. That was another way of getting out of the gallery, getting people to make their own, to collect their own materials and make their own little house protection amulets. And then just place them in the liminal zones of their homes, which is over a doorway, over a chimney or over a window. Liminal zones are those zones that we pass through where you're neither in nor out. They're very magical. They... Um, they're those spaces between the sacred and the profane. They're, you know, they're very, very rich and you can activate them by putting these objects. I've got a couple of objects from Manila. I'm just pointing now to over my door to Ken, showing him some of my amulets from the witchcraft market in Manila for protection. I mean, it's, so, it yeah. sounds like, you know, when you talk about witchcraft, talismanic uh, resonance, talk, you know, mnemonic... Lumen and luminal you use all these terms 
was it hard, difficult? Was was there any barriers to over, that you had to overcome within the community to, or or did they kind of mm. understand, or, or did it find a place? Because again, sometimes these terms for me, I have to ask a lot of questions so that I can place them kind of almost in a in a physical yeah. world so that I can understand how they are in real life. Did you have to go through any of this? No. Interestingly, uh, most people get it pretty quickly, especially when it's a, about their homes, mm. you know, and it's about the care for their homes. It's just like, yep, for sure. And what absolutely strikes me that even in this time where we're so um, scientifically orientated and we have, well, we think we have such a grasp on the world, how superstitious we all still are. And people will do anything to have a go it's just another little thing it, it's just it's quite remarkable and when I use those terms and phrases they do they just get it they really do they want it they want it they they want to find a way to express it themselves and I'm very much into you know happy to empower them to do that yeah it's it's just it's not a problem because it's not about personal gain it's not about you the individual it's about us as a group actually again I say the word caring and taking taking responsibility and and stepping up to being the guardians that we were put on the planet to be you know instead of trashing it I think I remember reading in something you've written that you've had close somewhere between 15 and 20 addresses in the past yeah. 20 yeah. ish years mm -hmm. what's your understanding of home what is home to you Oh wow, that's um, that's that's something that I'd I'd have to think about. Um, safety, nurturing, um, belonging, community. When I when I say home, mm -hmm. is there any immediate location? Is there a face? Is there people? Is there anything that immediately comes to mind that you could almost put a stake in the ground and say, <laughs> "This is my base for home"? Or is no, it is it a is it a, a feeling? Yeah. It's a feeling. You can go anywhere and feel like you're at home, but it really depends on the environment that you set up. That said, when you do establish a relationship with a place like the one that I was just telling you about, where you understand not only the stories of the colony, but also the stories of the Indigenous people who were here or there, uh, something uh, it really does shift. Something shifts in your in the in your perspective and the way that you experience that place. It becomes tender, and it becomes very intimate. And you start to understand how it works on a seasonal basis, how it works on a weather basis. It's all very connected, and that's empowering unto itself in a time when feel less and less mm. power in the world so and yeah. it makes me think of the work you were doing in the community and having them make their own little pieces for their own house it almost gave them just from my understanding it we have so many things in our house things that we need things that we don't need things that we may have even forgotten how they've ended up in our plate in, mm. in, in our spaces but just this simple act, because of a because of a sense of purpose, this 
act of creating something that you're imbuing an emotion and a, and a hope mm. and a power into mm. gives them a, a much richer and deeper connection. Mm. To, and a sense to, of responsibility yeah. as well. Every time I walk out that door under that piece, mm. I'm having that experience of you are going out into the world as a responsible human being who has to keep, keep an eye on things mm. and say hello. Say hello to the place around you. Say hi to the birds. Say hi to the plants. Say hi to the road, the trees, the car. You said <laughs> earlier, as you're describing where you began with this, with the street and spirit maps, you're walking around threatened neighborhoods. Mm. It's a confronting, it's a confronting thing to think about because we, I wouldn't naturally think of these neighborhoods as threatened but well, believe then, me they they are under and, threat and when you use that word responsibility mm. that the act of this caregiving this this tender act of creating something it kind of shows our responsibility and our responsibility starts within these four walls but then it does extend beyond i'm interested in i've never led a very active and, and what I mean by active, I've never been very strongly an activist. I've never really been able to find my place or a cause or, you know, something that's made me want to get leave my house on a Saturday and be in George Street on a, on a Saturday afternoon and kind of <laughs> just be with people for a purpose. I've just never found the frequency or the resonance. But it, I feel it's important and I'm grateful for those who do. It's something that I think we should be teaching at a young age. And we had mid to late last year, students around Australia protest uh, the federal government by not turning up to school. And then for our prime minister to turn around and say, that's a pretty idiotic thing to do. You should be in class of course for our fundamental right. Yeah. And mm. I was deeply inspired by the, these, you know, teenagers who do this. It. Yeah, They get it. Despite everything that's been thrown at them in terms of privilege and wealth and materiality and education uh, to the contrary, education to the contrary, they get it. They get how important it is. And they are the generation that's going to be more affected than any of us. They're going to, they're going to be living with it and they know it. And they, they really, really do give us stuff. I'm not going to ask you to solve the problems of at least Sydney, but maybe you can help me. I'm a father of a nine-year-old boy, and I really want him to have, because I, I like you just said, I believe that the world that, that I'm leaving him has got problems. Mm. And, you know, we've had, we've just had the hottest January on record. I'm Irish. I struggle in this type of heat and humidity. The Januaries he's going to face in 20 years this one's probably going to pale in comparison. Pretty much. What's, in terms of encouraging his activist heart, because I think we all must have it somewhere. Show him the wonder. Take him on walks and show him the wonder. Let him, and let, don't, you show it to him, but let him find it as well. Mm. Walk. That is the only advice I will ever can say to you, is take him on walks. Get him out of in front of the screens go with him spend that time with him and walk with him because walking opens your eyes oh he'll probably whinge a little bit and when can we go home but the more you discover the more that's revealed to him with you as a parent as his guardian and guide 
it may not resonate straight away, but it will later on. It will absolutely resonate. Thank you. One of the concepts from your work that's that really jumped out, and I think this was the title of a of a of maybe an installation piece or, or a series of pieces you put together was remembering forgetting and always impermanence. Mm-hmm. That's what does that mean to you? Well, that was sort of coming back a lot to the idea of all of the moving, the nomadic sort of life that is forced on many of us in this time, uh, especially if you don't own a property. The uh, experience of uh, wanting creative space or having access to space, comfortable living environment at the same time, is becoming less and less of a possibility. So that installation used a lot of cardboard boxes that I'm very familiar with because every time I move, all of those statistics that you mentioned before, um, I've had to use a cardboard box. So it is the medium that represents movement for me and uncertainty. And I also like it because it's an ephemeral material. If I'm going to be working in a gallery space or doing an installation, I want to be, hopefully, working with materials that um, aren't going to be damaging to the environment in any way. Um, So what I wanted to do was build a neighbourhood or build a city in some way. And I used the cardboard boxes to do that. And then I incorporated all of my little house protection amulets and my tree protection amulets and all kinds of... um, bits and pieces from my life and and from my family and I piled it all up into a doorway into a liminal space I absolutely blocked it so there was no question of anyone getting in and out of that doorway with this vision this installation because I think at the end of the day places that we have they're so full of beautiful poetic rhythms and, um, and enchantments. I just really wanted people to look at that place as, um, as or to look at that, look at that installation as a, as a thing that, cap- that was alive and something that captured the terroir of the place. Do you know what terroir means? No. Terroir is um, a French term that's used in viticultural, in viticulture, which is um, when you taste a wine, and you can taste the essence of the place. So you can taste what the sun did, what the earth did, what the water did, what the little flitter, flitter of the butterfly did on the grape. That's the terroir. It's the spirit of the wine or the spirit of the earth in the wine. Wow. I'll have to think of that the next time I'm... But it's, 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 a, it's a lovely... Just, just, just pop it in, you know, somewhere in one of your cocktails. and Oh, mm, that's terroir. But it is a lovely thing to think of, whether it's in... in wine or it's in your experience in a community that there is a an experience that precedes us and again you've mentioned that you know we are living out and when we look at patterns and rituals and rituals do give us that sense of security yeah that you know and the map and the ritual will tell us what's to come Mm -hmm. and how to guide us um what what have we what have we forgotten in your opinion in terms of how we connect with a space an environment, a, a locale. Yeah, it's living quality. I think we forget the places are alive. That's what we've forgotten. Um, in um, old pagan, particularly in Roman times, even the house itself had a god. So they were called the cough gods, and the cough gods are the structure 
of the house. So it's the architecture, it's the thing that holds it up. And the Penates are the god of the hearth, which are, is, is sort of more of a dynamic spirit. It's where you, you gather and you cook and you share meals and you have, um, have interaction and engagement with um, the people of the home. So the cough gods and the Penates are these living spirits. You worship the cough gods and the Penates of your home, it's always going to be safe and happy. I love those Romans. <laughs> they really, they, they did a lot of things right. Yeah, well, you know, they also, you know, they, liked a lot of blood. <laughs> there was, there was. You get the extremes, don't there, you? Yeah. You spent about three years involved creating, learning, giving with, with this. Are you still involved today? Yes, yes. I'm working on a project at the moment which is um, uh, definitely involves my ritual walking and gleaning that I've been doing um, in the past project. What I've been doing recently is working on a bit of my own ancestral history. I have, I'm seventh generation uh, Australian with um, the f- my great-great-great-grandfather came here in the 1820s as a merchant and bought land in, uh, in George Street in Sydney and then he owned land in uh, Petersham and in Leichhardt. So he was prosperous uh, for a while. And so I have been walking to all these different places and not just where he's lived, but also where I know my grandparents lived and where my parents lived. And I walk to these places and I collect stones, just one or two little stones from each place, pop them in my pocket, bring them home, and then using a real estate print, I papier-mâché casts around the little stones. Once they're dry, I pull the stones out, so I free the stone from the cast. And then I uh, drill little tiny faces into each stone and put them on the end of long sticks that I also find on walks after very windy days. And these are then assembled in long, long lines, like little heads, little, what, what they look like is a colony. Mm. They look like a colony that's grown up out of the ground. And this... Which is, in a figurative way, it's creepy. what happened. It looks creepy, but in a really good way. I love creepy things. So, oh, I, yeah, I definitely love them. And these, I've been making lots of experimentation with papier-mâché and masks, but these are sort of the next iteration where I'm really looking at my own lineage, looking at ways to repair and free the place, and looking at accountability, and the role that real estate and real estate thinking plays in that whole game of aspiration. As a real estate writer, nobody knows more about aspiration than I do. I know what to write in a piece of copy to get people's you know, mouths watering and their eyes flickering so that they need to get to that next open house. So, um, so that just that whole game, that whole dynamic is really at play in this work. My responsibility, my accountability, my ancestors' accountability. It's the, the colonial project on a stand. It's very interesting to me that going back seven generations, your great, great, great grandfather was buying property. Mm. Mm. All the work you've done 
with magical resistance has been around land, property, ownership, rights, community. And you yourself have your own role with, within the real estate industry. Um, it's, I, 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 I'm, maybe I'm you know, making meaning where no meaning is, but I'm seeing patterns there. And, That's it. And it's it's a, my, own, my own psychopathology playing yeah. out that has been going intergenerationally for many, many years. And at some point with this project, it has to be acknowledged and stopped or rethought. So that's the expression of that particular artwork. You know, it's just really, really vital that it it manifests as something and starts to work as a reminder. What do you want to be reminded of? You know, when you're going back seven generations, when you're visiting the places that your, you know, your family's first, you know, your your family had its origins. That we don't really own this place. We don't own it. Ownership is an ephemeral passing, you know, uh, connection is a completely different thing. John Howard resisted an apology for many, many years because uh, I think the government's position was it wasn't the government of the times place to apologise for the government of the 60s, the government of the 20s, the settlers of the, the late 17th and 18th century. Kevin Rudd eventually, you know, delivered an apology. Um, and it kind of continued throughout last year. And there's a lot of big speeches and a lot of things being said. But in reality, we're here. How can we improve our relationship to the land and to its original owners? Listen. And listen deeply. But more than that, start to disassemble the structures that keep Indigenous people down. We've seen Kerri-Ann Kennelly do something on TV just recently where she appearingly came to the aid of, um, of, of uh, people in um, the Northern Territory um, in order to critique protests that were occurring on Australia Day. What she, she was doing, totally unco- without realising, was... Um, Casting Indigenous people as 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 victims and not as people who were in the process of retaining their power and taking their power back, just constantly talking about them as rape victims and and um, disempowered, disenfranchised people. We've got to stop thinking about um, people in like that. We have to uh, change okay my, my biggest thing at the moment is superannuation mm. okay we put all of our superannuation away just you know it goes off to some superannuation cr- company we don't really ask where it goes but the truth is that a lot of our money goes into mining projects or big dam projects or electricity and gas projects um, that completely and utterly ruin lives we have to take our money out of those projects and start putting them into into projects that are um, of greater integrity, and in projects that will um, empower those those communities as well. And we have to change the date. But, you know. <laughs> One thing at a time. Start. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we talk about gestures. Triple J recently moved the date of their hottest one hundred. Yeah, good on them. Um, I I find myself 
calling it a public holiday mm. as opposed to mm. Australia Day, what it is mm. or what it's still called. Mm. I believe I, I first moved here in 1988, but in March. So from, from what I believe is the first Australia Day, when it was locked into being the 26th, was only in 1988. So That's it's, right. It's still, yeah. mm. it's new. Yeah, it's, it's brand new. So there's no reason for attachment. And there's every possibility to change it. And mm. I think that's why the conversation is um, getting so much traction. I hope so. I hope so, yeah. It would be great to see. Yeah. I mean, a more. I come from a place where I just want people to feel included. I came here as, a, as an 11-year-old immigrant. It took me a while to feel included, even though I look like what an Australian looks like. I didn't feel like what an Australian should be, but uh, that's, that's taken some time. So... We just want everyone to be able to share in this experience, whether whether they live in the inner west. I mean, it's it's fascinating the questions that come up from tackling ancestry. Mm. This must be uh, you're new newly into this project. Yeah, yeah. I, look, uh, you know, as you say, um, John Howard refused to apologise because that's the part, you know, the mistakes of people that he's not lo- no longer responsible for. But that's not really true, because as long as you keep on buying into the structures and the uh, that are there to privilege white people and disempower others, then you are you're, you're a part of the silent majority. You're actually perpetuating the problem. So yeah, gotta gotta find ways start to 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 break that down, to shift it around. And I asked to say, take your son walking. Yeah. You know. That's the start, you know. It, once we start seeing the place in a different way, those structures start to automatically disassemble themselves very quickly. I think if I walk away today with what, and there's a lot here, I'll probably have to go back and listen to this now half a dozen times to really pick up. But I think what I'm going to walk away at least immediately is the relationship I have with the environments I inhabit and just thinking more presently. Uh, or try to be more present in those environments and and just let that connection... We don't have to force that connection. Look for the patterns. Yeah. Mm. It's fascinating. Yeah, they'll speak to you. Actor and comedian Kevin Pollack says, if you're not creating, you're waiting. Is there anything you're waiting on? No, if I'm always creating. <laughs> it sounds like it. And I mean... This... I never stop. I'm not... I wish I was waiting for something. No. I imagine... Are, are you a list person? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So Listy lists everywhere. So there's notebooks with half ideas, full ideas. Yeah, but there's also a lot of Excel spreadsheets. Oh, wow. Mm, oh, that's okay. That's how listy I am. And are we talking <laughs> multiple columns with status updates? And, and... colours. Oh, you... oh, wow. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. I'm just, I'm a notebook person, so I've got scribbles. I really, and I use little sticky notes sometimes to kind of stick, you know, like a post-it note sticking out of a page. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it must be great to be in a continual creative place. It can be a bit exhausting. I need a lot of downtime. Mm. What do you do in your downtime? How do you switch off? Not mm. that you can ever really switch off because I imagine your mind is mm. always looking for patterns or is always hearing maybe the subtext or seeing the subtext of an image or, or a, something. But what do you do to... I take a bath or I water the garden. I go out and say hello to the garden. Again, it's about that connection to... Yeah, place well, where you, you are know, it's just yeah we're friends 
Good. Spend time with my friends as well. But switching off is very much about disengaging even from the social world. So, yeah, private, quiet moments with with the, the um, unseen others. Wow. So, Gabrielle, I end each podcast with asking my guests for a few quick hit questions, just top of the mind, nothing too deep or meaningful but it could be yep whatever it's open so you all good for me to throw some at you chuck them at me great if you could have a walk-on song every time you walked in the room what would it be right now at this stage of my life it's burn the witch by radiohead <laughs> i love that fantastic what is one thing you're certain about that everything is connected beautiful what's non-negotiable what's a deal breaker for you neglect absolutely What's one thing you can't currently live without? Radiohead. Oh, cool. <laughs> Love it. That's my perfect answer. What are you going to entitle your autobiography? All the unloved everythings. <laughs> we'll copyright that. That's yeah, yeah. Can't yeah. be used. Gabrielle Stay away Bates. from it. <laughs> Lovely. I've already given a few artworks that name. So we've we've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about. Your art, we've talked about, you know, topical things in the news. Where can we direct people to go to learn, to either learn more about your own art or what's happening in the community around them? Yeah, it would be um, helpful. People can see my work with the community and the talismans, amulets and and all the past work that I've done with patterns um, at www.gabriellebates.com. They can also see what I'm doing right now uh, at Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is at cloudbow. Could you spell that? C-L-O-U-D-B-O-U-G-H, cloudbow. Ooh, the cloudbow. original spell. Cool. I'll, I'll make sure that there's links and everything there. Okay. Um, apart from community things, just if you're a Facebook user, go to the West Connects Action Group and uh, become a member and follow what's happening there. Um, and also Saving Sydney's Trees is a wonderful um, Facebook group who um, will keep you up to date with uh, all the major changes that are going on in Sydney. Um, and I've also got a Facebook page which you are welcome to join called The Tree Shriners. And if we've got a project coming up, we always let everybody know there. Great. I'll make sure there's all links so people yeah, can no go worries. and find that. Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. I mean, this has been... As I said, I think I'm going to be absorbing elements of this conversation for quite a while to come. Awesome. So thank you so much. Think we got it? We got it, man. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) There you have it, folks. My chat with visual artist Gabrielle Bates. And it was a good one. I'm still, even just listening back to it now, just so much has jumped out at me. I'd love to know your takeaway. And you know you can email me at kenspodier at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought. And of course, drop your address in so I can send you a Merry Podmas card at Christmas. You can stay in touch with Gabrielle and everything that she's up to at gabriellebates.com or on Instagram at cloudbow. You can also check out the various Facebook groups that she referred to, the West Connects Action Group, Saving Sydney's Trees, and the Tree Shiners, and I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. So that's it, folks. That's the episode for another week. Four down. 
we're heading into our second month of podcasting. I'm super excited. It's been such a learning curve this whole time. I'm learning every day I sit down with someone new and learn to put a pod together. And hopefully they're just going to get better from here. So I'll see you next week. It'll be another Sunday. It'll be another pod. It'll be another great chat. And I'm looking forward to having you join us. You take care now. Bye.